Good afternoon and welcome to the fourth episode of the Community Relations Corner, a new weekly Zoom and podcast where we discuss issues of concern to the New York Jewish community. And together we chat with our friends and partners who represent the political, religious, economic and diverse community leadership of New York. I'm your host, Michael Miller. I'm the Executive Vice President and CEO of the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York of the JCRC. And today we are joined by my friend, New York City Council member, Mark Levine, who is also chair of the council's committee on health and former chair. We worked very closely together when he was chair of the council's Jewish caucus. We're gonna speak with Mark about how the pandemic is affecting the city and particularly how various Jewish communities are facing COVID-19. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Community Relations Corner is sponsored by the Free Synagogue of Flushing, serving the Reform Jewish community in Queens, New York for over a century. Visit freesynagogueflushing.org to view a 360 degree panorama of its magnificent stained glass sanctuary and immerse yourself in a piece of Queens Jewish history. All are invited to join for a wide array of programming and webinars and the beautiful sanctuary social hall and meditation garden will be available for a rental to add to your joyous occasions to your simchas. Check out the synagogue's website at freesynagogueflushing.org to learn more about Shabbat and holiday services with the holiday of Sukkot coming up this Friday night and Shabbat and Sunday and weekly Sunday school. Once again, visit freesynagogueflushing.org and seamlessly. We now are honored to welcome our fourth guest on the corner, the first Jewish guest <laughs> on the Community <laughs> Relations Corner, New York City Council member, Mark Levine. Shalom, welcome, Mark. Shalom, Rabbi Miller. Michael, thank you for having me. It's really an honor. Well, it's great to have you as our first Jewish guest on the show. Um, before we get into some policy issues, uh, which we're going to be discussing, as I've referenced, uh, let's our, our, our watchers, our viewers and listeners know a little bit more about Mark Levine, um, where you grew up, um, who, how you were raised, your family, uh, how your high holidays were. Uh, and it's also National Hispanic Heritage Month. Uh, so there's an opportunity to discuss the raising your children of both Jewish and Hispanic traditions, the embrace of multiculturalism, promoting Jewish culture in the city, et cetera, et cetera. This is the opportunity to really, Mark, uh, share with uh, our, our viewers and listeners who you are, please. Wow, thank you so much. Um, I actually grew up in Columbia, Maryland, uh, oh. from a Jewish perspective. Uh, perspective. I really got much more Jewishly involved amongst many other things. Uh, reconnecting to family in Israel that I had a chance to visit uh, a number of times and uh, along the way uh, picked up Hebrew. Uh, actually, I had uh, much better Spanish at the time. I learned Spanish living in Spain in college, so I had to play catch up there. Uh, and now I'm really uh, happy to have a, a multilingual household. Uh, our, our two boys bar mitzvahs were a trilingual affair, uh, <laughs> the requisite in Spanish, but also uh, 
a healthy dose, excuse me, the requisite English and Hebrew and a healthy dose of Spanish. And of course we, we live in, in, in an incredible community of Washington Heights, yeah. which is itself uh, multicultural in so many ways. And so All the right. intersection I, of, I spent, I spent a lot of, of Latino culture. I said, I spent yeah, a lot yeah, of time. Yes, you have. <laughs> In Washington Heights, yes, yes, indeed. Well, you know, YU is is a pillar of the community, and it's also, of course, home to uh, a huge and important part of my life and my family's life. And uh, I think the community is a great example of of intergroup relations, yes. building on a common history and culture. And there are challenges. Uh, we have more work to do for sure. Um, but it's been a big part of, of who I am and not just professional, but personal life. Uh, the high holidays, my goodness, um, uh, unusual, unlike any other. I would say the highlight for me, I, I got to be part of a Tashlich on the West Harlem Piers, wow. 125th Street in the Harlem. Yeah, it was led by this amazing community called Kehilat Harlem, which is really a, a wonderful and growing community um, in West Harlem and, and uptown. Uh, and just, just a beautiful setting and a beautiful opportunity for reflection. I'm very much looking forward to Sukkot. I think it's basically the Jewish equivalent of outdoor dining, which we've all been enjoying for months. And uh, you know, a relatively open air uh, way to, uh, to have a meal in this ancient structure that connects us to tradition in a really meaningful way. Yeah, wow. Uh, but I understand that that you started out as a bilingual, not trilingual, but a, a bilingual math and science teacher right. in, in the South Bronx. What led you into the political arena, Mark? So teaching at, at junior high school 149 um, in District 7 in the South Bronx, uh, really, it was probably about the best education I ever got. I just learned so much from my students and my family and, the, and their families. Um, and after teaching, I went on to start a nonprofit, uh, actually in Washington Heights, that was very much looking to um, to respond to one of the greatest challenges that the families in, in my school were experiencing and families in low-income neighborhoods all over the city, which is lack of access to financial services, where unfortunately, even today still for many families, Financial services are through check cashing stores and pawn shops and loan sharks uh, in Spanish called prestamistas. And so I started a nonprofit, a community development credit union. Uh, it's called Neighborhood Trust um, to help families get access to the financial services. Um, the credit union is, is still going strong. It's made $25 million in small loans to um, folks uptown, helping people buy a home computer, uh, pay for education, start a small business. The repayment rate is 98%, incredible testament to the community. And that, that really is the base that allowed me to um, ultimately win election to the city council, the credit union membership. And uh, I'm really proud to have won uh, election now twice in the uh, incredible seventh council district, which is one of the most diverse, I might even say the most diverse in New York City. Um, it, it runs from 96th Street on the west side um, up through uh, Morningside Heights and Manhattanville and West Harlem and through through uh, up to Southern Washington Heights where I live. Um, and 
representing it now for uh, well about seven years has just been the honor of a lifetime. Well, do you do you miss the classroom? Do you uh, very much? Yeah. Very much. I'm still in touch with some of the students, believe it or not, all these year, years later. I'm incredibly proud of them and uh, how many have gone on to work in, in science or science-related fields. Um, uh, it, you know, I, I often say that being an elected official is tough, yeah. but it's actually only the second hardest job I've ever had. Uh, being a teacher was the hardest job I've ever had, Michael. I have so much respect for the folks that are in the classroom. And my goodness, now, uh, I mean, what they've been through the last, <clears throat> excuse me, the last seven months, uh, just heroic efforts by them. And what I've seen out in the schools, which I've had a chance to visit um, so far this week, um, I'm just in awe of what the teachers have pulled off in these very difficult circumstances. But having been there myself, I, I just have a unique appreciation for how difficult the career is and how important it is. But, but um, I'm going to get back to that in, in a second. I want to just step back um, uh, another step beyond that regarding your chair, your chairmanship of the Jewish caucus. Uh, that role that you played that you can share with us in terms of what you experienced, what you learned, um, broadening, broadening your horizons. Um, there are about a dozen members, if I remember correctly, yep. of, of, the, of the Jewish caucus. Um, how did that role play itself out and, and influence your thinking regarding the Jewish community and the place of the Jewish community here in New York? Yes. So actually, there were 14 members of the Jewish caucus last term, which uh, was an all-time high, still is an all-time high. Um, I certainly had real life confirmation of the adage, 14 Jews, 15 opinions. Uh, <laughs> Only 15? Yeah, on a good day, sometimes more. Uh, a very, in all seriousness, a very, very diverse group in many ways, certainly in terms of perspective, reflecting very diverse districts that we've all been elected from. And that's a beautiful thing. Actually, not all the districts are majority Jewish necessarily, which is the result of coalition building and, and something I certainly celebrate. On, on, on a more substantive policy front, um, we worked a lot on Jewish poverty, and I have to ad admit to having underestimated the extent yeah. of poverty in, in New York City's Jewish communities, um, which is, it is painfully extensive. And I think that, uh, I don't think I'm alone or was alone. I think that even in the Jewish community, the extent of poverty uh, in our community is underestimated. And I've I've thought a lot about why that is. I think it has to do with an unfortunate sense of shame that people feel about that. And it's something that remains hidden. But I mean, there, there, are, there are people who are struggling and um, who need help providing food for their families. And um, that's particularly true amongst uh, elderly Jewish New Yorkers and most painfully and really, um, and really unacceptably amongst a segment of elderly uh, Jewish New Yorkers, which are Holocaust survivors. Right. And so, so I'm, I'm probably the thing I'm most proud of in, in that term, and I think a lot of us in the Jewish caucus are proud of, is that we created a new initiative that funds support for Holocaust survivors. Right. And I have to, to recognize a shout out to our former colleague, uh, Rafael Espinal, who though not a member of the Jewish caucus, really led that effort. Mm -hmm. um, but it's now created a, a recurring, uh, I think at this point, the over $2 million 
uh, initiative to fund more than a dozen nonprofits who are supporting, uh, at this point, it's, it's very aging population, but Holocaust survivors who are struggling, many of whom struggling with economic needs and other needs, and I'm really proud we've been able to help them. Right, that's, that's really outstanding work. And we also know about Holocaust survivors, senior Holocaust survivors um, who are, are of Russian extraction, who have just come here over the past 20 years or so, yeah. um, and the challenges that, that they are facing. So it isn't just longstanding Americans right. or, or New Yorkers uh, who, have, who came here after the war, but uh, those who just came here recently uh, who find it very, very difficult. So uh, the information that was circulated, I assume, was in, in multiples of languages. Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, the, the, the Russian community is, is, a, is, is a large, large component of Holocaust survivors in New York City. And the numbers uh, m might shock people, but um, tens of thousands, uh, the numbers are dwindling. I believe it's still over 40,000. Really? And that makes us... Uh, one of, if not the largest community of Holocaust survivors of any city uh, globally. And, uh, and so it needs attention. Uh, it, it would be unconscionable that people who have survived the horrors of the war now in their twilight years here in New York were neglected. And so we can't let that happen. And, um, and we're really proud of the fact that uh, you are there with your colleagues, but you in, in many leadership capacities ensuring uh, that they have the sustenance uh, to, to live dignified lives um, after all that they have suffered. Um, speaking about, about uh, suffering on a different level uh, through this, this pandemic and, and back into, into the school system, can, can you share with us your, uh, your views on um, uh, the reopening policies of, of the city and do they do everything right? What else might they do? in order to uh, ensure the safety security of not only the students, uh, but the, the teachers as well, and the, and the super principals and supervisors. Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm really worried about this. I uh, was amongst those council members, uh, more than 30 of us ultimately, who called for delays in the opening of the public schools because we just felt that, that the system wasn't ready. Um, I am concerned about staffing problems, some of which I I've witnessed myself being out there in schools in the early days. Um, there, there are uh, concerns about the broader spread of the virus right now, which is on the rebound at, at almost the exact moment when we've begun to reopen the schools. And uh, you know, that's going to manifest itself in the school communities. There's no way it can't. And um, we need to protect students and, and, and staff and teachers and everyone in the school. And, you know, that might not ultimately be possible, Michael. This, this is uh, early days and um, we have a lot of resource problems to fix. Uh, we have to put into place a, a robust testing regime that del delivers results in a timely manner. Um, we have to ramp up. Uh, contact tracing in our schools in a big way. It's extremely resource intensive and very complicated. Um, and I'm hopeful that it's possible, but with the operational challenges so far, and as I mentioned, with the virus coming back, um, I'm, I'm very concerned about it. But with you as chair of uh, the Committee on Health, um, 
how, how does that leadership role manifest itself? Uh, what powers, what influence on policy uh, does this committee have within the city council that impacts on, on all New Yorkers, uh, not just members of, of, of your own district? But officially, the job of the committee is to provide, to provide oversight to the city's Department of Health, which is a massive agency, $1.7 billion uh, budget, and also to pass legislation, legislation related to health. Um, uh, so it, it's been a very active time for the committee, you can imagine. Uh, for me, it's also been uh, important to use the role to stand up for science uh, in the midst of this pandemic at a time where, frankly, uh, that perspective has been under assault. And uh, to use my platform to push out uh, science-based information to the public, to people in my district and citywide, um, you know, based on my access to experts, to epidemiologists, to people in emergency departments, uh, to public health leaders who know more than me. Um, I think it's, it's been helpful to have a science background. I, I studied physics in college. Um, and not that I claim any credentials on that front at this point, but um, it's been helpful uh, to give me a science-based framing to look at this pandemic. Um, and unfortunately, Michael, it's an ongoing crisis. Uh, we're exhausted by coronavirus. The city is exhausted by this. We're exhausted by the lockdown measures and the precautions we have to take. But um, the virus never went away. Even in the summer where we had remarkable stability, um, where pretty consistently we were 250 cases a day about, um, but still that, that, that threat remained. And in the last few weeks, uh, those numbers are moving in the wrong direction, which we can talk about. Um, but New Yorkers, just, we just can't let our guard down yet because there's still a tough fight ahead. Right, and as we have seen in, in the minority populations, uh, the potential for infection is much higher than it is in, in uh, white populations and the healthcare disparities. We, we've, uh, we're creating now a, a coalition at JCRC just on healthcare disparities. It's a multi-ethnic, multi-faith coalition um, uh, once again, uh, within the framework of, of the, the health of, of the city of New York, over which you have uh, oversight, uh, I think that's a critical issue uh, to in ensure that everyone, regardless of, of their social status or economic status, uh, is provided with quality health care. You're right, Michael. I mean, this, this pandemic has both um, highlighted and exacerbated tremendous inequality, racial inequality, socioeconomic inequality in New York City and nationally. Um, the numbers don't lie. Uh, fatality rates have been more than double for uh, New Yorkers of color relative to white New Yorkers. And if you, you really see it dramatically, if you look at it neighborhood by neighborhood, where black and brown neighborhoods in New York City I've had fatality rates five, 10 times in some cases, higher right. than whiter and wealthier neighborhoods, if you do a zip code by zip code comparison. And that reflects, of course, 
inequality in access to healthcare and structural racism in the way healthcare is delivered. It also reflects inequality in housing because th this virus spreads much more easily in overcrowded housing and overcrowded apartments. And um, it's why in places like the South Bronx and Corona and, and, and Washington Heights and Inwood, you've seen a much more rapid spread, partly because of the housing uh, conditions. Also, uh, we've seen uh, tremendous inequality in employment drive this. The people who are out there as essential workers are overwhelmingly uh, or disproportionately people of color. They have been exposed. They have taken a risk for us. Many have gotten sick. A heartbreaking number have died. Some have brought the virus home to their families. We owe them an enormous de debt, but that has also driven the inequality. And so we can't look away from this. And if there's any positive opportunity out of this horror of the last seven months is that I don't think society can and will ignore that inequality. And this could be a once in a generation opportunity to confront it and fix it. And so what can government do about it? What are people who are, are watching this program and looking to the chair of, of the health committee, um, what optimism can we have that this issue is actually going to be addressed uh, so that everybody will have access to quality health care? Well, we, we, we ha I think we have to finally, as a society, say once and for all, from a moral perspective and a practical public health perspective, that it's unacceptable for anyone in this society, regardless of their wealth, their citizenship, their documentation status, it's unacceptable for anyone not to have health insurance. Right. Uh, that has profound impact on people's health. It has it, that, that impact in New York City. And it has led to inequality in the underlying conditions which have driven um, inequality in this pandemic. Uh, let's use this moment to fi finally fix that. Um, there's also embedded racism in the healthcare system. Um, documented levels of inequality the rates of maternal mortality for black mothers in New York City, I'm not talking about other parts of the country, are 12 times greater than it is for white mothers. And um, the healthcare system is riddled with that kind of inequality, driven by disparate treatment of, of particularly uh, black patients, but all patients of color. And so we have to confront that now. We have to fix it. Um, this moment should, if nothing else, force us to confront these inequalities. Well, thank you for responding to that. And uh, we're gonna just take a, a pause and give our thanks to um, the sponsor of, of this episode um, of the Community Relations Corner, the Free Synagogue of Flushing, which is serving the Reformed Jewish community in Queens, New York for over a century. Uh, visit freesynagogueflushing.org to view a 360 degree panorama of its magnificent stained glass sanctuary and immerse yourself in a piece of Queens Jewish history. All are invited to join for a wide array of programming and webinars and the beautiful sanctuary social hall and meditation garden will be available for rental to add to your joyous occasions. Check out the synagogue's website at freesynagogueflushing.org to learn more about their Shabbat and holiday services with Sukkot coming up as we discussed and weekly Sunday school. Once again, visit freesynagogueflushing.org and back to the issues. So we, we look forward towards um, economic recovery from the pandemic and, and how might uh, you and other elected officials see this moment of crisis as potentially as an opportunity to make our city 
even stronger than, than it was before the outbreak of, of this menace? Well, I don't want to minimize the challenge that we face right now as a city economically, um, the fiscal challenge for city government and state government too, obviously, and the pain that that's causing, um, not just among small business owners, but among people who have lost their jobs, over a million New Yorkers have lost their livelihood. Um, and, and this is gonna be a long fight, Michael. It's, it's um, uh, and per perhaps even could outlast the immediate period of the pandemic. Um, but ultimately I am really confident that the city is gonna come back economically and otherwise. Um, in part because we have again and again throughout our history for hundreds of years, we've come back from, uh, from infectious disease and natural disaster and a terrorist attack and uh, economic collapse. Um, and I'm confident that the things that have drawn tourists here in the past will draw tourists here again. The things that have made this uh, a center for the arts will continue to make it a center for the arts and draw people from, from the creative sectors. And uh, then ultimately employers are gonna see this as the best place in the world to locate because this is where employees wanna be. Um, uh, but in the meantime, I'm really worried about small businesses, about restaurants, um, many of which have already gone out of business. Um, uh, outdoor dining has been a lifeline, um, not just for those of us in the public, but also for restaurants. We started yesterday a limited indoor dining at 25%. Um, we are extending outdoor dining now through the winter by allowing outdoor heaters. I'm very excited about that. Other parts of the country of the world do it, even colder climates. Um, we're gonna need to do a lot more to support small business now in the months ahead. Uh, they're gonna need rent relief and resetting of leases because many of them are accumulating unpaid rent. They're gonna need financial assistance. They're gonna need access to credit. Um, and for the broader employment sector, we do have to find a way to get people back into office buildings, Michael, because there's a whole ecosystem of businesses that uh, operate around every office building, from street vendors to shoe repair, to restaurants, to theaters. And they're dying now because only about 10% of office workers have come back. And I think we can find a way to start to bring office workers back with tremendous safety precautions built in. And that has a secondary benefit of all the businesses that survive on having people in Midtown and downtown every day. Well, you, you've raised a, a lot of issues and I, I wish we had all afternoon to, to discuss each and every one of them and, and drill down. Um, I, I haven't been back to my office since, since March. I've been working at home. The vast majority of, of my team have been working from home. Um, and uh, people have become, have, have adapted uh, to this new reality because we don't know when the level of safety is going to, to be there to um, allow us, uh, to give us um, a, a sense of, of uh, comfort that we're going to be healthy um, going to work and coming back from work. Um, let alone within within our, our buildings. But again, without <laughs> drawing myself into that any further, yeah. um, let's let's talk about uh, some of the Jewish dimensions of uh, the impact of this pandemic. Uh, we've all seen 
uh, the, the headlines, we've seen the, the news stories uh, about the outbreak in, in, in a number of uh, communities, number of neighbors, number of zip codes uh, that, that are predominantly uh, populated by members of the Orthodox community. Yeah. Um, and some of our, our viewers and listeners uh, may be living in those districts um, as we speak. Um, and uh, what is it, why is this happening from your perspective? Is the city responding, the city, the state, are people responding as they should respond? What can the city do? What can the city council do in order to ensure the safety of all New Yorkers, as well as those within these particular neighborhoods uh, who we all want to be safe as well? The city has to do better in building relationships around public health with every single marginalized community. That's really how public health works. But specifically now uh, talking about uh, Orthodox communities, Hasidic communities, uh, from communities more broadly, uh, that requires linguistic skills in some neighborhoods, not, not all Orthodox neighborhoods, but um, we had a hearing in the city council yesterday uh, in which it, it, it emerged, excuse me, Tuesday, the hearing was Tuesday, in which it emerged that um, we have virtually no Yiddish speaking contact tracers out of a contact tracing workforce of 3,600. Uh, they wouldn't tell us exactly, but they would say, all they would say is the number is between zero and six. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'm led to believe it is much closer to zero than six. Um, I mean, that's really unacceptable. And it, it reflects it reflects a bigger problem. And, and it's not just about uh, the Yiddish speaking uh, staffing. It's, it's about cultural competency. And ultimately it's about building trust and having pre-existing relationships before you are in the midst of a burning crisis. Um, and so we have to do better on that front to build relationships and trust. Um, and I, I will say on an optimistic note that there's been really good work done by the city and by, and by leaders in the Orthodox community of late, uh, particularly uh, beginning on, on, I would say, Arab Yom Kippur, uh, a strong mobilization to get the word out on mask wearing which really has improved a lot in recent days uh, in Borough Park and other neighborhoods. Uh, there's been a lot more mobilization of, of rabbinic leadership and uh, Hatzalah is doing great. Uh, so I'm hopeful, but uh, that this is gonna be a long fight. The numbers are still moving. Uh, even from the, yesterday to today, Michael, the numbers in some of those neighborhoods got significantly worse. So I don't want anyone to think that we're out of it. Just because mask usage has improved on 13th Avenue, we are not out of it. Uh, in fact, um, there's a delay in the way this virus manifests and uh, we could see worsening cases for weeks. And most painfully, we could start to see rising ER uh, admissions uh, and in fact, Yesterday, for the first time, and we haven't been able to say this really since June, there's been a slight increase in emergency department visits for COVID-like symptoms. And so 
I, I want to stress that how serious this is, Michael. It really is deadly serious. It, it really is. Uh, we all recognize that. And so much work has been, we've been working with behind the scenes, um, as we generally do with leaders in the, in the Hasidic community um, and the general uh, Jewish population to just raise consciousness. Um, and it's so important to model uh, for your community, those who are leaders, that um, that wearing a mask is not something to be an embarrassed over. It's not an encumbrance. Uh, it's it's uh, a level of safety and security and assurance uh, that uh, you will protect others, let alone uh, protect your, yourself. And so much more needs to be done uh, across the board. This is not just about the, the uh, ultra-Orthodox, uh, the, the Haredi community. Um, this, this is about all, not only in New York, but, but across the country and, and around the world. I mean, the, the, the numbers are, are really frightening, particularly the numbers coming out of Israel are, are, are terribly unsettling. Yes. Um, and and I, I read the story and then in the New York Post uh, about your, your hearing uh, yeah. the, the other day. And uh, how is it possible um, that, again, 3,600 people in, in the unit and less than six, they have to report if there are six, but less than six are Yiddish speakers. How many of them are, are we spoke about the Russian community before, how many of them are, are Russian speakers? Um, and uh, there might be other uh, language yes. groups. They've done better. They've done better on some of the other languages. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yes. Oh, go ahead. They, they have done better on on some of the other languages. They have over two hundred Spanish speakers as well. They should. Uh, they have. I believe. I, I don't recall the exact number, but a few dozen Russian speakers and other uh, less prevalent languages, Yoruba, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, I, but I, which which I, I I absolutely celebrate. Um, we need to pay more attention to some of the smaller uh, language communities. But you know, Yiddish is actually actually not one of the smaller language communities. It ranks, at last I checked, number seven really? in most widely spoken language in New York City. And um, of course, and in, in some of the more affected communities right now, it, it's quite prevalent. So. It, it does deserve more attention. Um, and there, I think there are some challenges with, with the way they've designed the job requirements for contact tracers, requiring advanced degrees in some cases, um, which I, I, I think are an unnecessary barrier um, to do this job. I think there's people out there who've got the language skills, who have cultural competency, who would be amazing contact tracers um, that we shouldn't be turning away just because they don't have, for example, a BA degree. Right. Um, so just to, to shift in terms of our, of our topics uh, to an issue of concern, particularly to the Jewish community, but to many others, uh, before the pandemic hit, uh, there was a dramatic spike in anti-Semitic incidents in, in New York uh, and other incidents of hate impacting on, on other communities. And you were, uh, the lead sponsor of, of the original bill to create the office, the city's office uh, for the prevention of, of, of hate crimes. And we all know that this office is relatively new, um, but um, what led you to taking on this challenge and how do you think uh, the city currently uh, is dealing with it uh, we're all concerned in, in the Jewish community for the potential for anti-Semitism 
at any time, including now. Uh, yes. But once we get beyond the, 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 this big wave, this tidal wave of the pandemic, uh, might there be a resurgence of anti-Semitism and acts of hate as there was prior to its hitting? Well, there's, there's been a resurgence in hate crimes in New York City, uh, really for five years. The largest category, unfortunately, is anti-Semitic hate crimes. Uh, but there's been an increase in many other categories, including anti-Muslim hate crimes. And um, we wanted to mobilize the city to respond in a coordinated way that uh, cuts across agencies and uh, that brings together everything from the Education Department to the Human Rights Commission to the NYPD to uh, the Department of Health, the Department of Parks, uh, in a way that's coordinated and strategic. And that's why we wanted to pass this legislation, which I'm really proud we did. Um, you know, I'm sorry to say that uh, the pandemic has once again um, revealed some pretty ugly tendencies. And um, early on, uh, the Asian communities of New York City, specifically Chinese American communities of New York City, were targeted in extremely ugly ways, totally unwarranted. Uh, and, and, and you and I and many others spoke out against that. Unfortunately, the Jewish community has been targeted as well. Uh, this is really kind of the third time in, in, in a year that the Jewish community has been targeted related to a public health crisis. The, the measles outbreak last year, right. the early stage of coronavirus, when you, as, as you recall, some of the earliest identified patients were Jewish. And now in the last week or two, during what has been a resurgence. And uh, it's just unacceptable. And um, we have to call it out. Um, and we've seen now beyond a doubt that hate speech leads to acts of violence. We can't wall off or dismiss hate speech. Uh, and so uh, this deserves real attention and it's certainly an important function of the city's uh, relatively new office to uh, prevent hate crimes. Yeah, um, I, I think that all of us uh, were very unsettled uh, by that, 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 that spike and uh, we're also still concerned and considering how much attention is, appropriate attention is being brought to, to the pandemic, we can't lose sight uh, of, of the issue of hate crimes uh, and uh, it's, it's good that, that and I, I thank you very much on be, behalf of, uh, of all the people who are participating in this uh, for being the lead sponsor of that bill and for the creation of that office. Uh, the, the director, executive director, uh, Deborah Lauder, has been a, a longtime colleague of mine um, in, the, in the community relations world uh, at the Anti-Defamation League and at the Community Relations Council in Atlanta. Um, and she's, she's an outstanding professional. Um, and I, I just hope that she's given all the resources and the city council can ensure that she's given all the resources necessary to in, ensure that she can be effective at the work that she is doing. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to kind of wind up and talk about the, the Israel issue. How can we have a conversation uh, um, with a Jewish professional and uh, the former <laughs> chair of the Jewish caucus uh, let alone the fact that you're a uh, fluent uh, Hebrew speaker and, and not talk about Israel. We, we just recently experienced um, a very uh, disturbing 
uh, controversy uh, around a questionnaire that was circulated by the Dem Democratic Socialists of America, by the DSA to uh, city uh, council candidates for, for those who would be succeeding you as a term limited uh, member of the New York City Council um, uh, that uh, asked only two questions in their, their foreign policy uh, section. And uh, the fact that even in this uh, questionnaire, there was a foreign policy qu uh, section is, is uh, interesting. Um, let alone the fact there are only two questions, they only related to Israel. And one, uh, if invited on a trip to Israel by a, an organization uh, referred to as a junket, um, would, would they pledge not to go? And you had gone on a JCRC mission in, in 2015. We thank you for that. Um, and the second question was, uh, do you support the boycott, divestment and sanctions, the BDS movement? And if not, why not? Um, and uh, do you feel that that was a, an, an appropriate way of determining as to who receives an endorsement by a, a national uh, uh, political movement? Um, what are your, what attitudinally, uh, uh, what was your reaction to that? Uh, did any members of, of, of your community in your district who were planning on running for that seat uh, speak to you about it? Oh, I, I, I was and remain outraged by it. Uh, it's absolutely unacceptable. Uh, it is the definition of a double standard. Um, we have had uh, delegation visits to many countries in my time in the city council. Right. Uh, including not by myself personally, but, but there have been city council trips to, to China and to Russia and to Turkey. Um, no one ever raised any objections before or after any of those trips, Michael. The only place that anyone raises objections to us visiting, it happens to be the single majority Jewish country on earth, Israel. Again, it's, it's, it's the definition of a double standard. And, uh, and, and it's absolutely counterproductive to the cause of building mutual understanding, which is that we need to have an exchange, a cultural exchange to understand each other, to understand different countries, diverse communities of different countries. Um, and my goodness, what a complicated region Israel and the Middle East is. Uh, and to, to be there in person is in, in critical way of understanding it. And I think it's outrageous that we would want less dialogue. It's counterproductive to the cause of peace. And, uh, you know, I'll point out that you read the amended version of, of that questionnaire. The original version just said, will you commit not to visit Israel? Right. Correct. And, uh, so that would mean that I, I can't visit my cousins there. I, I guess that's what they were asking. Uh, again, there are myriad despotic regimes on earth, but according to that questionnaire, you can visit any of them except for one. And, and that's really outrageous. Um, and so I called it out and I was uh, relieved uh, or gratified that Many, many of our colleagues in government did as well. Um, but as you see, uh, the question remains uh, still on the questionnaire, which is very yeah. unfortunate. Um, I, 
Uh, and by the way, uh, it's not that you were referring to Israel as a despotic regime. <laughs> yes, oh, for, despotic forgive me. Forgive me. Thank us. you. Thank uh, you for clarifying. Uh, yes, it's a it's it's a, a democracy. You can disagree with the government, but um, it's still a democracy. Uh, Absolutely. I want to end uh, our discussion, our conversation on on a positive note, a very positive note, um, and that is the new. A peace agreements between Israel and the UAE and, and Bahrain and potentially um, other countries. Um, uh, how do you think that that, and I actually had a discussion um, internally today uh, with some of my colleagues across the country uh, just about that, that issue. Um, how do you think that um, uh, opportunity uh, for Israel after all of these years uh, of 72 uh, years of, uh, of living uh, in a, uh, a war zone, in essence, um, that opening up this potential for there to be diplomatic relations, economic business relations, commercial relations uh, between Israel and, and other Arab states, um, and with the hope, of course, for there to be a, 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 a two-state solution from our perspective uh, to bring uh, peace between Israel and, and the Palestinians. Uh, are you more optimistic than, than before? And if so, how much more optimistic? Well, first, I want to say that I, I am a uh, very strong supporter of a two-state solution to the conflict and that I remain... Uh, really pained at at uh, at the failure to achieve uh, such a solution, and I continue to advocate for it. Uh, having said that, I think that the opening up of dip diplomatic relations between now two Gulf countries, uh, UAE and, and and Bahrain, is 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 an unmitigated positive for uh, for the region and, and for Israel and UAE and Bahrain. It, it's gonna open up person-to-person -person contacts uh, with the benefits that I was just speaking about. When, when people have direct contact and they gain greater understanding, uh, it, it reduces the possibility of, of conflict and uh, cuts through the ignorance that is still so prevalent uh, between cultures. Uh, it opens up economic vistas for all the, all three countries, and um, I hope it'll serve as a model uh, and will be the beginning of what will be a trend of, of deepening ties. Israel is a Middle Eastern country. Israel is located smack in the middle of the Middle East, and that in, in ways that I don't think people who haven't been there realize uh, it, it, it permeates the culture there, it, but it's it's uh, it's an untapped potential. Uh, oh, for offering economic opportunity, cultural exchange, and uh, I, I I truly celebrate the growing ties between Israel and its neighbors. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I just looking at at my phone. I, I just got a a, a Facebook Messenger message from. Uh, a person in, in Morocco uh, giving, who's watching this on Facebook and giving us a, a, a thumbs up, Mark. So <laughs> <laughs> we must be doing something right, but thank God for, for Israel and the UAE and, and Bahrain. Uh, one thing that I know about this is that if, if these diplomatic relations uh, continue, uh, that you're not only gonna know English, Spanish and Hebrew, but you'll probably uh, become a, an Arabic uh, <laughs> 
a fluent in Arabic to, as well. To our friend, to our friends in Al Maghreb, La Bess. <laughs> I will. Um, Mark, thank you so much for for being on the corner uh, with us, and particularly from my perspective uh, with me, it's truly been a pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, to all of our listeners, our viewers from around the world. Uh, uh, please follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Levine NYC to see all of his work uh, that he does for, for us as, as New Yorkers. Uh, and that this episode of the Community Relations Corner is and has been sponsored by uh, the Free Synagogue of Flushing serving the Reformed Jewish community in Queens, New York for over a century. Visit freesynagogueflushing.org. And I hope you get a chance to go there yourself, Mark, to view a 360-degree panorama of this magnificent stained glass sanctuary and immerse yourself in a piece of Queens Jewish history. All are invited to join for a wide array of programming and webinars and the beautiful sanctuary, social hall, and meditation garden will be available for rental to add to your joyous occasions. Check out the synagogue's website at presynagogueflushing.org to learn more about Shabbat and holiday services and weekly Sunday school. Once again, presynagogueflushing.org, whose president, Ed Chowder, is a member of the JCRC board and whose uh, cantor and executive director, Alan Brava, is a terrific friend. We thank them for their sponsorship. And I'm gonna give you the opportunity for, for a, a last word, Mark. Toda Raba, Toda Ravi Miller, Chag Sameach. Muchísimas gracias a todas y a todos. Les deseo todo lo mejor. Feliz año. Thank you very much. It's been a true pleasure and an honor. And Shukran Jazilan. Shukran is right. Toda Shalom. Thanks to our audience for, uh, for joining us live. Uh, I'm Michael Miller, together with Councilmember Mark Levine, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Community Relations Corner. Shalom, Chag Sameach. Take good care. Bye-bye.